Good morning. Uh, I'd like to extend a special welcome to all of the uh, families and parents here for, uh, for Family Weekend. If you would, will you please stand so we can just say hello and welcome you? Yeah. Welcome. Uh, we have been working through the book of Ephesians, looking at Paul's call and charge to us uh, to live lives worthy of the gospel, to be imitators of God. And as we've talked about being imitators, we've talked about what that means to walk in in truth and to walk in light and to walk in wisdom. Um, and with the beginning of Lent, as we prepare to celebrate the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, um, we're going to look at a time of Jesus's preparation in the wilderness uh, before his ministry began in earnest. And it's interesting that when we talk about preparation, um, oftentimes preparation is thought of as a time to get better, more, stronger, right? You're, you're in a time of preparation now um, as students where you are you are learning skills, crafts, trades, worldview, the things that will carry you out into the world. Um, Billy Graham, years ago, when he was talking about his own personal ministry, um, somebody had asked him, do you have any regrets, anything you wish you would have done somewhat differently? He says, you know, I, I wish I would have done more preparation before going directly into the ministry. I would have spent more time in God's Word and more time studying so that when I went out and ministered, I would have been perhaps more effective. Um, I think that happens as we get older and we, we realize how little we actually know and how um, inadequately prepared we ever actually will be. Uh, but Jesus' preparation is a little bit differently. Um, for Jesus, his preparation, um, it, it involves something in, in a way wholly different. Before we could be united to him in spirit, he chose to be united to us in flesh to become like us. And he did that so that in Hebrews 4 we read, we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So when we think of the, about the preparation of Jesus for his ministry, we expect the divine blessing that comes, right? Uh, when he's baptized and he comes up out of the water and the voice of God from heaven says, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. We expect that. But we don't necessarily expect what happens next. That after the declaration of favor, God leads him into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tested, and to be prepared for what is coming. So as we begin there, we want to set just a little bit of historical context though, that I think is essential for us understanding this passage. When we look at the temptation of Jesus, we know that Satan... The accuser and the tempter is the one that brings the temptations before the Son of God. And I think in order for us to understand fully and, and um, more robustly what's happening there, I think we have to understand the motivation behind Satan's desire to tempt Jesus. Is it possible that it was just a, a, um, a, a practice in um, authority? Did, did Satan just want to make Jesus look bad? Did he just want him to sin for no other reason than he hated the Son of God? I don't think that's it. I think, I think Scripture reveals something a little bit more um, complex and gives us a, a deeper picture into what's happening. When you look at the testimony of Scripture, you have a pretty clear hierarchy of creation. 
And within that hierarchy of creation, you have God the Father, above all things. God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And then directly below, just a little bit below God, you have the angels. And then created below the angels, you have man. Psalm 8 talks about it. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. So scripture is clear. You have this, this hierarchy, God, angels, man. And angels are given a very specific role in scripture. God calls the angels to a very specific and particular task. Hebrews 1 talks about it. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Angels are called to serve those who will inherit salvation, and that is man. So when we talk about the fall of Satan, oftentimes the fall of Satan gets equated with this, uh, more with, with uh, Dante than it does with Scripture, but this idea that there was a heavenly batter, battle where, where Satan wanted to take God's place and tried to raise up a third of the angels to, to do battle in the heavens and was eventually defeated and cast down. But, but the fall of Satan, I think, has far less to do with that than it does to do with this fact. That while Satan may like to be his own God, it's not about taking God's place. It's not that he wanted to be God, but it's about pride. It's about the fact that Satan couldn't stomach doing what God had called him to do. His problem is this, that God created him in a place of honor as a heavenly angelic being, but he called him to serve a being lower than himself. And throughout all of scripture and throughout all of history, it has been Satan's goal to prove that God's judgment was wrong, to prove that man is not worthy of being served. If you go back, you can look with Job. Satan sets out to prove, that, to, prove to God that Job would curse him to his face to show that Job was unfaithful, unworthy of the care that God afforded him. The disciples, same as the case with the disciples, Satan goes before God to request to sift all of them like wheat. He wants to prove them unworthy of God's care and love. The disciples who promised to love and follow Jesus. And then with Judas, we see it with Judas. He tempts one of the inner circle of Christ's disciples, one of his closest friends in the world, to betray him. One of his friends who would end up betraying him for money. So Satan's goal Satan's goal and ultimately becomes proving that God's judgment is wrong, that man is pitiful and unworthy, and unworthy of God's care, of God's love, but most importantly, unworthy of being served by an angel like himself. So, setting context there gives us a picture as we come into Matthew 4 and the temptation of Jesus. So let's take a moment and pray first. Uh, Father God, thank you, Lord, um, that you... Um, Reveal yourself to us in your word. Thank you, Father, um, that you love us, and thank you for your mercy. Father, I do pray that by your spirit um, you would speak this morning. Um, I pray, Father, uh, that any words that are not your words uh, would fall from my lips like ashes and would not be remembered. Um, but, Father, we do ask that by your spirit you would speak to us, that you would exhort, encourage, convict, challenge, and draw us closer to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew 4 starts off with Jesus being led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. And it tells us that after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And it may seem like a, an odd thing to do, right? Immediately after this declaration of favor, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness, where he's there for 40 days, 40 nights, 
a time of preparation. And we look back to Israel, and it's not unlike Israel, God's son, his people, right? Who, after coming through the baptism in the Red Sea, was taken into the wilderness for 40 years to realize and to learn that God was the only one who was their provider, their strength, and their hope. But Israel proved unfaithful while still pointing to the one who would come, who would be tested in the wilderness for 40 days, but who would prove holy and utterly faithful. So John sets the stage by telling us 40 days and 40 nights have passed and Jesus is hungry. And the tempter comes and says to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And we don't want to miss the kind of cosmic implications uh, that are taking place here. The deceiver, the accuser of man, the one who petitioned for Job's destruction, the one who tempted Adam and Eve, the one who planted the seeds that would ultimately bring the fall and bring sin and death into God's creation. He stands before the Son who spoke that very creation into existence and he seeks to tempt him to sin. And here's how he does it. If you are the Son of God. Just a whisper. Just place a seed of doubt. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And what Satan's doing initially seems almost somewhat innocuous, right? Jesus is hungry. Why not eat? But he's approaching Jesus with the same wise and clever subtlety with which he approached Eve in the garden. And it's a good word for us and something to always hold on to. It is very rare that the attacks of the deceiver are transparent, full frontal attacks. It is very rare that we will see them coming for exactly what they are. They are more often than not subtle and clever. They are twists and manipulations. They are things that make us feel deserving and rightful rather than ready for battle. Is that a whisper that you hear? Is it a whisper that the, that the evil one, that the deceiver puts in your ear if you really are God's child with an insinuation that given your sin, there's no way you could actually be redeemed. Hear that for what it is. It's a seed from the accuser to be squashed by the assurance of Jesus who says, my sheep, listen, they hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And then hear this, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And the subtlety here with Satan before Jesus is that Satan is addressing a base human need. And base needs are inherently self-focused. They are not sinful as such, but they are focused on self. Hunger, thirst, cold, it's all about self. So Satan is literally tempting Jesus to use his power to serve himself. Tell these stones to become bread so that you can eat and no longer be hungry. But he's doing also something more treacherous. He's trying to make Jesus question his identity as God's son. Like he did with Eve, did God really say, if you are the son of God? But Jesus knows who he is. He knows exactly what his mission is, what he is called to and what's before him. He's the morning star. He's the light of the world. He is the anointed one. And he knows that he's the suffering servant. So to serve himself, and his own needs is anathema to his identity and his mission. It can never be about himself. So Jesus doesn't falter in his answer to this first temptation. He answers, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
He answers from Deuteronomy chapter 8, a quote there, where the Israelites' hunger led them to grumble against God. But instead of grumbling, Jesus will say, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So he won't serve himself in his mission to serve others, and he repels Satan's first temptation. The second temptation takes us to a second place. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. The setting changes, and it's wonderfully, and I think just beautifully poetic, that Satan, that the evil one, takes the Lord God to the temple, the place where he has been worshipped. And there they stand, the temple courts below, wilderness beyond, looking out over creation, and Jesus seeing it with human eyes. And he says again, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And now in the second temptation, instead of calling him to serve himself, Satan is trying to tempt Jesus to put God to the test. Okay, if you are God's son, you'd better make sure he's going to take care of you. And here's why I think Satan put this temptation before Jesus. Satan is quoting God's word from Psalm 91, a psalm that is about God protecting those who he loves. And that psalm becomes relevant because of what has just happened at Jesus' baptism. When God the Father speaks from heaven, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. It's taken from Isaiah. And it's taken in reference to the suffering servant. And I think in Satan's accusation here, what we hear are echoes of him saying this. I heard the blessing proclaimed by the Father of you at your baptism. And I know where it's from in Scripture. And I know that it speaks of a servant who may have to suffer. If there is some kind of suffering before you, you had better make sure that God will protect you from whatever is coming. Jump, and you will know for sure. And when you jump, you'll also demonstrate mankind's lack of faith, putting God to the test, which mankind has done over and over and over, proving faithless more times than can be counted. And why on earth would this be tempting to Jesus, right? The truth is, Satan, who is not omniscient, has no idea just how close to the heart of the matter he is struck. Jesus knows that the cross is before him. He knows that suffering is, in fact, coming. And as he stands looking over creation, is it possible? Fully God, but fully man. Is it possible that he thought, if I do jump and I check and see if God will really protect me, It would be far better to die here falling down than to go through what I know is coming at the cross if God is not going to be with me. Jump, says Satan, and make sure you know. But again, Jesus is unswerving. He answers him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Quoting from Exodus chapter 17, and it's so beautiful because in Exodus 17, the Israelites were thirsty, and when they were thirsty, they ended up questioning God's presence. Jesus says, I know God's presence. I know that he is with me, and I know that he is not to be put to the test. First temptation was to serve himself and demonstrate man's selfishness. The second temptation is to test God's faithfulness. He knows that the Father is faithful, and in both he proves faithful as well. 
So we come to the third and the final temptation. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Now we find ourselves on a mountaintop and we come face to face with Satan's truest, deepest, and most real desire. Jesus, as a man, to acknowledge the angel's superiority and man's rightful place below him. He says, Jesus, simply bow before me and set things straight. Set the order straight. Man before angel. And here's what I'll do. I'll relinquish my entire rule to you. You will once and for all affirm that man is unworthy of my care and my service. Now this may seem utterly crazy. Why would Jesus be tempted to bow before Satan? I have two examples here, but they fit. Aragorn, he would not bow before Sauron. President Halverson would appreciate me saying the Red Hot Chili Peppers would not bow before One Direction. Um, because the truth is, Jesus is God. All things were created by him, through him, and for him. He spoke the very creation into existence. And in a short time, he's going to reign over them. But we know what happens in Gethsemane. We know that there will come a time where Jesus will pray to the Father, is there any other way? And here, that other way is being offered to him. The crown is being offered, but it's a crown without thorns. The kingdom of the world is being offered in exchange for his bowed knee. But Jesus' answer is clear. He says, away from me, Satan, for again, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Quoting scripture, again, this time from Deuteronomy chapter 6, fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take oaths only in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Fear the Lord your God and serve him only. This man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, proves faithful. The seed promised to Eve in the garden, the true Israel, prepared for his mission, the suffering servant now on his way to the cross. And scripture tells us that the devil left him, and angels came and attended him exactly the way that God had created it to be. So Jesus is faithful. And as we reflect on this, I think there are two things I would like, like us to sort of um, sit with. Uh, the first is this call that we've been hearing from Paul to be imitators of God, to live lives worthy of the gospel. If we are going to be imitators of God, we have to be people of the word. In response to all three temptations, Jesus responded by saying, it is written. And then he quotes scripture. He applying the principles of God's revelation to specific circumstances of temptation and sin. And I will tell you this, we will not stand against sin and temptation if we do not live in scripture. I know there are, are phrases that we, we fear become cliche, but I will tell you this, something that, that people say a lot, it's not cliche if it's true. We have to be in the Word. It is challenging 
if not impossible, to follow Jesus and to be imitators of God without hearts and minds engaging his word. If you claim, if you say, I'm a Christian, I'm redeemed by God and by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, I am a Jesus follower, but you don't spend time marinating your heart, your mind, and your soul in God's word, something is off. As followers of Jesus, we must be in his word. How do you follow a teacher when you're not engaging the teaching of the teacher? We may know what to say confessionally, but how do we live practically? If we are going to be imitators, we have to be imitators. And really, why wouldn't we want to be in God's word? It is wisdom and life and life transforming. Secondly, and finally, Satan was right all along. He still is. He is right that mankind is unworthy. He is right that mankind is unworthy of being served by angels. He is right that mankind is unworthy of being loved by God. We prove that on a daily basis. It is not a mystery. We use our gifts to serve ourselves. We test God routinely, and we bow before our sin more often than we care to admit. But this was Satan's great problem. In his arrogance, he did not consider that God would see us clearly, know that we were unworthy, see that unworthiness perfect with perfect clarity, and still decide to love us, much less sacrifice his son for us and die for us. That is the foolishness of the cross, that Jesus would give his life for us, not because we're worthy, but despite our unworthiness. It has nothing to do with our merit, nothing to do with anything we could earn, and everything to do with the love of God. That is grace. And that is something that Satan could not comprehend. So as we prepare to celebrate Easter, let us as imitators of God, as followers of Jesus, let us be people of his word. Let us be in his word, reading it, praying it. Let us be people of the word and let us also be people of gratitude. Let us assume a posture of gratefulness because the one worthy of all honor and glory has deemed us worthy somehow of his love and his mercy. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you that you are a father who empathizes with us as one who knows every temptation and sin that we face, but who remained faithful and obedient. Thank you, Father, that when you call out to us by your Spirit, that you understand who we are and what we're experiencing and what we're going through and what we're tempted by, that you mean it. Thank you, Lord, that we can bring our lives to you. I pray, Father, that by your Spirit, you would make us unable to rest until we are resting in you that you would make us unable to be joyful until we are finding our joy in you. I pray, Father, that you would make us unable to be peaceful until we're finding our peace in you. As we prepare to celebrate your resurrection, Lord, um, please 
Uh, convict us by your spirit and call us. Make us hunger for your word. And I pray that you give, a, give us hearts of gratitude, recognizing what you have done on our behalf um, through your death and resurrection, your ascension, and your love for us. Be with us this day by your spirit. In Christ's name.